Well, it's our privilege today to continue in our study in the book of Romans that we started several months ago. You know, we live in an earn it society. Our culture around us says to travel down the road of personal happiness, you have to go down the avenue of success. Our American idealism is often called rugged individualism. Your life is what you make it. We have sayings like, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The focus is on achievement, accomplishment, attaining your next life goal. Not all of that is bad, of course. It's actually helpful in many ways. But the challenge comes is when we start to take that focus into other aspects of our lives, especially our spiritual lives. In church, we live in a faith-driven society. Our church culture around us says to travel down the road to personal happiness, you have to go down the avenue of service and sacrifice. Our idealism is rugged humility. The first shall be last. The greatest is a servant of all. To gain your life, you must first lose it. The focus is on accomplishing Christ's will. The focus is on inward character leading to outward obedience, which leads to glorifying Jesus Christ. It's important, even critical, that we understand the difference. It's not earn it, it's grace. It's not accomplished for me, it's service to him. You know what church we say, what John the Baptist is quoted as saying, he must increase, I must decrease. In church we acknowledge we can't, we need help. There were these funny uh, Lowe's commercials uh, several years ago. Let's watch one. I'm not sure why these guys are always redheads. I'm not sure what's going on there. But anyway, the point is, right, we can't do everything on our own. Often in life, we need help. As a matter of fact, when it comes to our spiritual life, when it comes to our relationship with Christ, the first thing we must do is acknowledge that we can't, that we need help, that we can't achieve it. No one has ever gotten to heaven on a self-help plan, an earn it, achieve it on your own plan. No one has ever pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and merited God's favor, earned their own status with God. We all spiritually stand before the bathroom tile of our lives as our own efforts crumble to the ground. It's actually only once we truly see the shattered remains of our failed efforts that we can finally see clearly our need, our sin, our hopelessness. It is there that we can finally see his grace and his love, his plan, his son. That's the message that Paul has been trying to teach the church in Rome over the last 
three chapters. In graphic and powerful detail, Paul has been expounding on the fact that it is the power of the gospel alone that saves. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. From the Gentile rejection of God in chapter 1 to the religionists, the the Jewish rejection of God in chapter 2, to the universal sinfulness of all of mankind in chapter 3, Paul has systematically dismantled any pretense of earning your own status with God. The Gentiles have willfully violated God's law that was written on their hearts. The Jews have willfully violated God's written law. And thus, as we saw in Romans 3, 19 through 20, the conclusion we all stand before God, our mouths stopped, unable to give a defense, guilty, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Having firmly established the universal sinfulness of all of us, having firmly established the universal inability of humankind to earn or to merit salvation, Paul then pivots so wonderfully in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and he starts to expound on the truth that he introduced back in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that our salvation is 100% the work of God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that truth, that eternity-altering truth of the gospel is received by faith. In Romans 3, 21 through 25, in just these few short verses, Paul lays out the power of the gospel for salvation to be received by faith. The scripture says, And now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, Paul has made a a clear and convincing argument. All of humankind are unrighteous sinners by nature and by choice, willfully breaking God's law and are deserving of God's judgment on our sin. But God gave his son, Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, that through his redemption for us, paying for our sins, and through his sacrifice for us, satisfying God's just wrath on our sins, we might be saved by his grace as a gift received by faith. Well, now we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is Paul's illustration to prove his point. Paul is saying, I can prove all this is true. I can prove that all of this has been true for millennia, from the very beginning. I can prove that God's plan of salvation has always been justification by grace through faith. I can prove it with the biblical account of Abraham. Yeah, that Abraham, Father Abraham, the father 
of the nation of Israel. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Romans 4, 1 through 8. The scripture says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Just a quick prayer. Father, now as we've read your word, as we now dive in to understand it, give us insight, give us wisdom to know you and your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In our passage today, first we see the illustration Then we see the explanation or the exposition. Then the verification, the corroborating evidence that confirms, that verifies the truth. The illustration, the explanation, the verification. First, the illustration. The illustration is Abraham. The question of verse 1 is, what did Abraham find? What did Abraham discover concerning faith? One paraphrase put verse 1 this way. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? See, Abraham's the guy. He's the father of all the Jewish nation. He's Father Abraham. He's the great man of faith, lifted up in Judaism as the prime example of what a true follower of God was like. It was the goal of every Jew to be like Abraham. In verse 1, Paul's essentially saying, because we agree that Abraham is the prototype example of a justified man in God's sight, let's take a look at him carefully in order to determine the basis for his justification. See, the church in Rome was a, was a mixed church with both Jewish heritage Christians and Gentile heritage Christians. We have seen Paul emphasize both groups at differing times and We'll see that again in this chapter. Now, one of the ways we see that played out is that Paul gives no history as to who Abraham is. He expects his readers to already know the story, the account of Abraham. Now, one could go on a whole sermon series on the life of Abraham. Let's just take a brief moment this morning to share some highlights of his life. The account of Abraham is detailed for us and. Genesis chapter 11 through 25. Abraham's name is mentioned 307 times in the Bible, in 27 different books of the Bible. His name means father of a multitude. He's not just the progenitor of the the Hebrew nation, but he's the most talked about one in the hall of faith 
in Hebrews chapter 11. In John 8, Jesus has this conversation with the religious leaders of his day about Abraham. And and they proclaim, Abraham is our father. We're in Abraham. They're saying, we're just like Abraham. But Jesus shows them in stark detail that though they are descendants of Abraham, they're not like Abraham at all. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of the Messiah. Abraham believed in God. They were rejecting the Messiah. They were following their own agenda. So let's look at five quick points of information about the life of Abraham. When God called Abraham... He was an idolatrous pagan. Abraham was from the Ur of the Chaldees, a thoroughly pagan city estimated through archaeology to have about 300,000 inhabitants at the time of Abraham. It's a significant-sized city for its day, a city of commerce and trade located on the Euphrates River about 100 miles north of the Persian Gulf, which puts it squarely in the country of Iraq. Secondly, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to go now to leave, to leave his people and to leave his country and to go to the land that he would show him. He's 75 years old. God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation. And what does Abraham do? He believes God and he leaves. Thirdly, there in Genesis 13, God promises that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as dust. In Genesis 15, Abraham still has no children. And yet God reiterates his promise saying that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. Genesis 15.6 is where we get our Old Testament quote in our passage today in Romans 4.3. At this promise of God, that his offspring would be so numerous, even though he's very old, even though he has no children, The scripture records for us in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord. But God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God. Well, the fourth little fact here today is that his belief wasn't perfect. We see several times throughout this story where his faith waned. But especially when he was 86 years old, not wanting to wait any longer for God's answer to his promise... He had a son, Ishmael, through Sarah's servant, Hagar. Well, fifthly, there in Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, God came to him, instituting the rite of circumcision. And then, guess what he did? He reiterated again that Sarah would have the son of promise. And God miraculously answered that prayer a year later when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 with the miraculous birth of Isaac. See, Abraham followed God not knowing where God was leading. Abraham trusted God not knowing how God would fulfill his promise. Abraham was a man of obedience and a man of faith. So the question Paul is asking is, was Abraham justified by God because of his obedient deeds, because of his works? Or was Abraham justified by his faith and his trust in God? 
Verse 2 says that if it was by works, then one could boast before God, bragging about their achievement. If one could be justified before God by his own deeds, then you could boast before God, God, look at all that I've done. God, look at all that I have accomplished. God, look at all of my amazing deeds. God, you have no choice but to choose me because I've earned it. But such boasting would be totally unthinkable. Instead, what does Paul do to answer the question? He appeals to Scripture. How does verse 3 start? Look at it there. For what does the Scripture say? Paul appeals to Scripture for his answer. So let's note two quick things about this phrase. First, it's in the present tense. He didn't say, what did Scripture say? He didn't say, what has Scripture said? He says it in the present tense. What does Scripture say right now in the present? What is Scripture saying? What's it saying today? The Scripture is speaking. The Scripture is alive. It's active. It's now. And then next, notice that he appeals to Scripture as the sole authority. The answer is not something from Paul. The answer is not something new. The answer is not the theological musings of religious thought. No, the answer is the authoritative answer of the Scripture. The Bible alone has the authority. The Bible alone has the competence. The Bible alone has the power to answer the question. The Scripture is the final court of appeal. To read the Scripture is to hear the voice and the will of God. To the scripture, Paul appeals for the authoritative answer, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, next we see in Romans 4, 4 and 5, we see the explanation, the exposition of Genesis 15, 6. It's pretty simple to understand. Verse 4 says, If you work, you earn wages. So if you work eight hours, you've earned eight hours worth of pay. It's not a gift. You've earned it. It's your due. It is owed to you. Your employer is obligated to give you what you earned. You can grab your paycheck, you can host it up, and you can say, look at what I've earned. Well, is that how salvation works? Is that how one is justified before God? No, verse 5 says, salvation is not earned by our works. It's not due us or owed us because of our deeds. Salvation instead comes to those who believe in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. One wrote, Paul is clear. Since work means the reward is given by obligation, the reward of righteousness must not be dependent on work, for God is never obligated by his creatures. Justification, salvation is a gift, freely bestowed, not as a wage, justly earned. Well, let's take a moment and look at three words in these verses that really help us understand what the Bible is teaching. The first word I want to look at is that word gift. This word gift comes from the word grace. I really like how the New King James translates this verse. It says, Now to him who works, 
The wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. See, salvation by works always excludes God's grace. But salvation by grace always excludes our works. One excludes the other. Romans 6.23 uses this word, the same word for gift, which comes from the word of grace. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages, what we earn, is what? Death. But the free gift of God, the free grace of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is only and has always been by grace as a gift. As we read earlier in Romans 3.24, it says that we are justified, saved by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know that grace? Have you received that gift? Well, the next word is actually the most important word in our passage today. It's repeated four times in our passage in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. And it's repeated a total of 10 times in all of chapter 4. It's the word counted. It's translated as counted or, or credited or reckoned. It's the word that God uses of Abraham in Genesis 15.6. You see, the word counted or credited is a legal term. It's a financial term. It means that something that belongs to someone else is credited, is counted to another person's account. To credit something is to confer a status that was not there before. One wrote, if we compare other verses in which the same grammatical construction is used of Genesis 15.6, we arrive at the conclusion that the crediting of Abraham's faith as righteousness means to account to him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. It's not that Abraham's work or faith produces righteous standing before God. No, it's something much more than that. His faith is counted and credited as righteousness. He's declared righteous. God chose by grace as a gift to spur faith and trust in Abraham. And thus God credited his righteousness to Abraham, as verse 5 says, while he was still ungodly. He was credited with righteousness that did not belong to him. Here's the truth. When we receive God's credited righteousness, we were still sinful. Because it's not about us. It's not about making ourselves worthy. It's not about earning our acceptable status before God. It's always about God. It's always about Christ. It's always about the Holy Spirit. It's always about their plan and their work and their salvation for us. It's always about their love for us first. See, there are two ways you can earn money and get it credited to your account. By your wages and that you've earned or by a gift that's given that is unearned. See, no amount of your credit, of no amount of our earnings, no amount of our merit will ever or could ever earn a righteous standing before God. What? Have our wages earned? Romans 6.23. Death. 
But what has God provided for us? The free gift, the free grace of eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, what we need is somebody else's credit to be put on our account. What we need is somebody else's righteousness to be put on our account. What we need is something that inherently doesn't belong to us, but to another. What we need is Christ to credit his righteousness, perfect righteousness, to our account, so that in him we can stand before our God righteous. Why? Because as the Bible so powerfully proves, we need help. We're sinners. That brings us to the last word I want to look at from these couple verses, and that's the word ungodly. It's a very significant truth, especially when you combine it with the word gift and the word credit. Who does God justify? Verse 5 says God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify those who claim to be good. He doesn't justify those who claim to have earned it. He doesn't justify the self-righteous religious person. No, God justifies the sinner, the unrighteous, the ungodly. Romans 5, 6 and 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All we have turned aside every one to their own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need God's gracious gift of Christ's righteousness, credit to our account, because we are ungodly sinners. That's the path of salvation. That's the only way. It was true for Abraham. It's true for all true followers of Christ. Is it true for you? Have you come to see that you can't earn it? Have you come to understand that your wages, your deeds, come woefully short? Have you come to embrace God's gracious gift of grace? His gift of faith. Have you put your trust in Christ? Have you exchanged your sin for Christ's righteousness? Well, first we saw the illustration. Then we saw the explanation. Now we're going to see the verification, the cooperation by David. Paul again quotes scripture as fact, as evidence, as proof. He quotes David from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. You see, Psalm 32 is a confessional psalm. Tradition holds that David wrote it after his repentance of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, of his sin of ordering the murder of her husband, Uriah. Remember verse 5? 
Remember Paul drawing us back to the truth that God justifies the ungodly. Oh, the enormity of David's sin. There was no merit possible to earn such deep forgiveness. Only the proactive, powerful grace of God could cover such sins. Only the wonderful, overwhelming mercy of God could forgive such sins. Only God could sow such love to sinners. And as David proclaims, such a person is truly blessed. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's that word again, count. Think about what David is teaching here. Instead of God counting his sin against him, instead of God crediting his account with his sin, he forgives it. Totally unmerited grace, real forgiveness. One wrote, justification involves a double counting, a double crediting. On the one hand, negatively, God will never count our sins against us, but put them on Christ's account. On the other hand, positively, God credits our account with his righteousness as a free gift by faith altogether apart from our works. One is reminded of another double statement of Paul's in 2 Corinthians 5 where God's work of reconciliation is described as not counting men's sin against them, but instead God counting it against his son, who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin with our sins in order that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. Christ became sin with our sins in order that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. We look at the beginning of verse 6. It says, just as David also speaks, in the same way David speaks. David says the same thing. Paul appeals to David to verify, to add corroborating evidence to the truth. David, the greatest king. David, the man after God's own heart. David, to whom the Messiah would be called the son of David. David says the same thing as Abraham. Forgiveness is a gift from God. Abraham understood that it was all about faith. All about God proactively doing the saving. David understood it was all about faith. All about God proactively doing the saving. David and Abraham agree. Now Abraham lived 430 years before the Old Testament law was even given. And he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. David lived within the era of the law. And he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Both saved by grace, through faith, not of themselves, apart from works. If the great prototype example is Abraham and the great corroborating verification is David, since it's true for these two great leaders, then it's true for everyone, for all time, for you and for me. There we stand like Abraham, like David, ungodly. There we stand like that guy in that Lowe's video with the broken pieces of our lives shattered around our feet, 
We need help. We can't do this. It's not within our power. It's not within our effort. It's not within our ability to earn a right standing before God. It can't be done. We need help. Is there one who would help us? Is there one who would save us? Is there one who would sacrifice for us? Is there one who would come to take our sin that's separating us from God? Is there one who would give us his righteousness so that we might stand before God accepted? Is there one? Yes. Yes, there is. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one, the one and only, the Savior of mankind. Is that what you believe today? If so, with David, we rejoice. We rejoice. Oh, how blessed we are. If that's what you believe today, rejoice. The blessing is incalculable. If it's not what you believe today, today can be your day in your own words, to pray from your own heart, to give Jesus Christ your sin and to accept from him the free gift of grace, of salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, now we come to you in these precious moments with the truth of your word reverberating in our minds and our hearts and our attitudes. We come to just humbly submit ourselves to the truth of it. And as believers, may we overflow with rejoicing at the, at the blessing that we've been given to be in the family of God, to be a child of God, to have received the greatest gift by grace through faith. Lord, enlighten our hearts and our minds to rejoice. And if you're here today and you've not received that gift, now you can do it in your own words, in your own prayer, from your own heart. Just be honest. Just talk to God. Admit that you can't, that you need help, that you've sinned and fallen short. Believe that Jesus is the one that, that died on the cross taking our punishment and our sin, and then rose again in victory, securing salvation, and then confess him as your Lord. Confess him as your Savior. Come to him today and exchange your sin for his salvation. In this we trust. In this we rejoice. In this we are blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.